So today you sit among a community of people, most of whom, if not all, would give personal testimony to having encountered this Jesus themselves in some way. So if you're new here, or if you're just visiting, welcome. This is either a gathering of delusional lunatics, <laughs> or one of many outposts of that eternal kingdom. So before you make your judgment call, hear us out. And if you still think we're lunatics, I don't care. Let's uh, turn to John chapter 20. This is one account of Jesus' resurrection among the Gospels. And we've been going through the whole book of John, and we're nearing the end. And so this is kind of where we're landing. John 20, verse 1 through 18. If you have a Bible, you can follow along. Otherwise, it's, it's on the screen here. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved. And take a quick note here, that's code word for John referring to himself, as he will later reveal in the book. So he's talking about himself. And she said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first went in also. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over and to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said. And I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you have put him and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. Would you pray with me? Father, right now, I just want to pause and once again ask that your word would be imparted through me and that your Holy Spirit would do its work, that you would speak to our hearts and enter into our lives and convict us where we need convicting. Help us to hear and to see you for who you are. And I pray particularly, Lord, that you would break down 
our categories, break down our filters through which we tend to hear and see. Mary had filters up. She had categories in place that kept her from seeing. And you called her out and you broke those things apart. And I pray that you do that for all of us today. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. They say seeing is believing. Or at least they'll say, I'll believe it when I see it. Have you ever said that? All right, maybe when your uncle was telling that fish story about the one that got away, you say, how big did you say it was? Yeah, I'll see it. I'll believe it when I see it, right? Or maybe that, you know, family member and uh, someone informs you, you know, they've actually moved out of their parents' basement and gotten a job. And you say, what? <laughs> I'll believe it when I see it, right? I'll believe it when I see it. Seeing is believing. Much of the way that we live our lives, whether we realize it or not, is dictated by what we believe about the world around us. And what we believe about the world around us is informed by our interpretation of the world. And how we perceive or interpret the world around us is going to be based upon how we see the world, what we observe, what can be experienced through sight and sound and touch and taste and smell, the five senses. And we live in an age that is heavily influenced by the Enlightenment. It's the I'll see it when I believe it age. I'll believe it when I see it age. I'm probably going to get this wrong all day. I'll believe it when I see it age. A time in which the great thinkers declared that all knowledge in the universe can be discovered through observation, the scientific process, experimentation, and by the process of discovery, eventually, all of the world's problems would diminish or melt away. This is what Star Trek, the original generation, was all about. Let me quickly say that one of the biggest mistakes Christians have made is to make enemies of science. God gave us science. He gave us the five senses and commissioned to explore and to fill and subdue and to garden and to build. That's part of who we are. But is that in and of itself the only way of knowing? Do we limit our definition of what is real to that which can be observed and tested and experimented upon? Or, as the great philosophical TV series Transformers coined the phrase, is there more than meets the eye. Is seeing believing, or is there more than meets the eye? The resurrection is a paradigm-shifting event because it changes the way we see. It gives a whole new meaning to life. It opens up a whole new world. It alters the way that we interpret what we see and experience through the senses. And because we interpret those experiences and information differently, it changes what we believe about the world, the story that we find ourselves in. And because what we believe about the world has changed, the way we live our lives changes as well. Everything is given a new context. Everything is seen in a different light. I'll believe it when I see it. That might be narrow-minded. Because first you have to consider what is riding on belief. I'll believe it when I see it. Well, what all is riding on belief in this case? Secondly, you have to recognize that there's a lot more to believing than just seeing. And there's a lot of different ways to see. Let me explain that a little bit. First, believing. 
There's the offer of belief. And it's so significant that if there's even a remote chance that it's true, it's at least worth considering. It's the offer of eternal life. John ends this chapter that we just read by saying that now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. And you've probably heard John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever should believe in him will not perish but have eternal life. There's a lot resting on the notion, on the offer of belief. And the biblical promise of eternal life is a lot different than the promises that other religions and belief systems offer. Many religions will offer some kind of ethereal heaven existence where you go off as a spirit and live on a cloud someday. Uh, that's not Christianity. Many will say that you're like a water drop and you sort of fall into the lake of water and meld into the life conscience and the human conscience of the universe. Some say you're reincarnated. Some say that, you know, there's some kind of an afterlife. There's a lot of different opinions about that was, but only in Christianity do you find our future hope defined as resurrection and new creation. You get a new body. Renewed in the same way that Jesus' body was renewed. Paul writes that we will be raised with glorious bodies that are transformed to be like what his current resurrection body is right now and a future resurrection date. It's still a physical body. It's not some spirit. Jesus says, touch me and see, I am not a spirit. A spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. Yet, it's a different body. Later in this passage, this, the passage, the disciples are all in, an, in a room and the doors are locked because they're afraid and Jesus just somehow shows up in the room. He appears among them. They don't always recognize him right away, which is odd, yet he bears the wounds of his crucifixion still. A perfected physical body, unbounded by the constraints of time and space and immune to decay and corruption and death, the promise is that this is what is in store for all who believe. And a new creation. John uses some subtle symbolic language like saying twice in this chapter, it was the first day of the week. That's nothing, he doesn't say that anywhere else in the whole gospel. The first day of the week. Why? Because something new has happened. A new corner has been turned. It harkens to the first day of creation in Genesis when God breathed and spoke life into darkness and into the empty void like a tomb. And he pushed back disorder and chaos and brought order and life. Or later in the chapter when it says Jesus breathed on his disciples and said, receive the Holy Spirit, which would harken back to Genesis 2 when God breathed into Adam's nostrils and brought him to life. There's a new life, a new creation. In other words, the language is meant to evoke a sense that a new day has dawned, a new age. A creation has turned the corner and is now moving away from death and darkness towards light and resurrection. We now live in a world defined by that hope, a hope that we have for the future, a day 
when that will all come about suddenly. But the power of that day, of that transformation, is already happening spiritually inside of us now for those who believe through the Holy Spirit. But we await the physical transformation to come. Romans 8 says the whole creation is groaning in the pains, not of death, but of childbirth. Waiting to be delivered from its bondage to decay and death. So we get a new resurrection body in a new creation that is our, our true country, the home we've all longed for, what this world is meant to be, what every political movement is striving for, what every revolution is all about, actually achieving it and having it eternally, what it was meant to be. So that's the offer. I'll believe it when I see it. That's what's riding on belief, eternal life, a new body, new creation. Secondly, there's different kinds of seeing. Our passage begins by saying it was dark. It was a new day, and while it was still dark, and it ends with Mary declaring to the disciples, I have seen the Lord from darkness to seeing. Brian Nelson, when he spoke on John chapter 3 months ago, pointed out that John uses darkness as a dual meaning to convey spiritual darkness along with physical darkness. So for example, Nicodemus is a spiritual leader over Israel and he comes to Jesus by night and we see that as a spiritual leader, he is spiritually in the dark and he barely is able to grasp what Jesus is talking about. Then the next chapter, we have a contrast. We have an outcast Samaritan woman who is a nobody who quickly is able to grasp and receive Jesus' message in the middle of the day while the sun is still high. So now we have a story that begins while it is still dark, spiritual darkness, and moves to light and seeing the Lord Jesus. So what does that process actually look like? For one, it's not blind faith. Christianity is never a belief that asks you to make a faith decision devoid of reason. It never tells you to simply shove your doubts and your questions aside and just accept what you're being spoon-fed without thinking about the evidence. Notice that Peter and John and Mary, and especially Thomas, which we didn't read about, all go through a process there's three words in Greek, actually four words, two of them mean the same thing, but there's three basically that, that all are translated as see in English, to see. It starts with blepo, basic seeing, observing. Mary goes to the tomb and she sees the stone is rolled away and she draws her own conclusion immediately. Or John saw blepo, the linen clothes, but he didn't go in. And then the next word that's used is theoreo. It's the word from which we get our word theory. It's to see and observe intently, to investigate. So Peter saw, theoreo, he saw the linen strips laying there perfectly. He saw that the headpiece was separate from it still. And he's asking, what does this mean? For instance, could it be grave robbers? Why? Grave robbery was done to steal the expensive herbs and embalming spices that would have been buried with the body. The body would usually be buried with 80 to 100 pounds of this valuable stuff. And so grave robbers would come and they would take it. They'd usually just take the body and hurry up. They had no time to unwrap 
the body. In this case, we know that Mary and the other women were coming to embalm the body. So the stuff wasn't even there. So grave robbery doesn't make sense. Why would they steal just the body and leave the grave wrappings? They see that it's almost like Jesus passed through the clothing. Lazarus was raised in a different way. He came out all bound up and Jesus said, go unwrap him. He couldn't get this stuff off of himself. Somehow, the grave clothes are lying there perfectly as if a body has just moved right through them. So he's trying to make sense of this. Then John goes in and he saw, not thereo, not blepo, but aido, which is to see and perceive and to understand what you're seeing. Therefore, he saw and believed. It's kind of like, I said this a couple Easter's ago, kind of like um, a Sherlock Holmes scene where, you know, Sherlock goes into a crime scene and he sees the scene. And then he sees the scene. He starts picking out details. There's a loose hair fiber over here and there's a stain on the floor and there's, you know, somebody, there's wet paint on the wall or, or something like that. And then later he sees Aido. He sees what happened and you get to see and it's always very shocking and surprising because they replay the whole murder scene or whatever it was right before you and it's not what you thought right it's kind of like three ways of seeing mary also goes through this process blepo the empty tomb thereo seeing the angels sitting there and seeing jesus but not even realizing it was him and then horeo which is the same as aido but in a different tense i have seen the Lord. So they all walk through this process of seeing, observing, investigating what are we seeing, and then believing. Faith is not merely blind belief, and it's not merely objective reason either. So what do they investigate? And I want to quickly look at some of the evidence for the resurrection. There is quite a lot, so go and investigate it yourself. But a lot of other possible explanations have been raised over history. For instance, one could say, well, the story probably evolved over time to become a legend. People were really sad because Jesus died. And they said, well, you know, his spirit lives on. And we'll keep a group of people together honoring Jesus' spirit and trying to hold to his teachings. And over time, that kind of turned into a legend to say that he literally lived on. And then everyone started saying that he rose from the dead. Well, studies have shown... There's a, a, a scholar named A.N. Sherwin-Williams at Oxford who studied legends. And he says it takes at least two generations of time for truth to morph into a legend. And what we know about the resurrection of these, is that these accounts are extremely early. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 Corinthians being one of the six books that even non-believing historical critical scholars acknowledge as authentic and legitimate. 1 Corinthians 15 was written only 20 years or so after the resurrection, and in it, Paul writes this. He says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. And then he recites that creed. He didn't make it up. This was already in existence before him. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. 
Paul is reciting that creed. Where did he receive that creed? He said, I pass on what I received. When did he receive it? Galatians 1. Galatians being one of the other six books that is acknowledged by unbelieving scholars as legitimate. Galatians 1, Paul waited three years to go to Jerusalem. So five or six years after the crucifixion, Paul received this creed about resurrection. Five or six years they believed that Jesus had been raised from the dead. So you have this 1 Corinthians hymn, this creed. James Dunn says that it could not have taken more than six months after the crucifixion. James Crossley, an agnostic unbeliever, and other New Testament critical scholars all say that this hymn dates one or two years maximum after the cross. Why do we care? Why is that significant? First of all, if you're not completely biased against the Bible in the first place and the evidence that it projects just because it's the Bible, then you have to acknowledge it is some of the best early material we have on any historical figure ever. If you just say, well, it's the Bible, so it can't be true, then you're being prejudiced and closed-minded. For example, Alexander the Great, the earliest source we have on him, shows up 300 years after his death. The best sources on him are written 425 to 450 years later. And we trust them. If so, stop being prejudiced about this stuff. The best textual data for Buddha shows up 600 to 900 years after Buddha. There's a Buddhist scholar who says we actually don't know for sure what Buddha taught. It's quoting Gary Habermas there. There's a vastly greater body of evidence for the existence and resurrection of Jesus than for Julius Caesar's existence, period. Secondly, it means that the tomb was really empty. If people were claiming this early that Jesus had been raised, they could still have been easily disproven by producing a body. No one ever did. No one ever has. Grave robbers stole the body, they might say. Well, we talked about that. As far as we know, there was nothing to steal. Why leave the grave closed? That's usually the reason you would steal a body. A naked corpse wasn't worth anything to anyone. The disciples disposed of the body, perhaps, and made up this story. There are several reasons why that is very historically implausible from what we know. One, uh, the disciples are cowering in fear, hiding in an upper room, having just bailed out on Jesus when things got tough while he was still alive. And now they're going to commit a capital crime, grave robbery, and go boldly proclaiming that the leader of their movement was still alive? Where would they have come up with that idea? There was actually no messianic expectation that the Messiah was supposed to be raised from the dead ahead of everyone else. They believed, some of the Jews believed, in a future ultimate resurrection in which in the future all the dead are going to be raised to life. But no one projected, no one believed that one person would show up as a prototype of what's coming. We also have in the decade before and the decade after Jesus, multiple people claiming to be messiahs. They started movements, they gained followers, and when they were put to death, the movement died with them. Nobody ever made a claim that their leader was alive again. 
If you wanted the movement to keep going, you either find a new leader or you find another movement. You know, there wasn't much you could do about that. And you watch as history plays out. The Jesus movement was dead on Saturday. No one was a Christian on Saturday. They crushed it. On Sunday, it explodes to life in something that is so life-altering that virtually all of the early eyewitnesses, the followers of Jesus, spend the rest of their lives sacrificing everything to declare and proclaim that this is true and even dying for that belief in the most horrible ways. Would you do that for a scheme that you just made up just to kind of save face? You're not saving face. There's the eyewitnesses themselves. Paul writes 1 Corinthians around 20 years after the crucifixion. And he says that Jesus appeared to more than 500 witnesses at once. And, that, and he notes that most of them are still alive at this time. And then he starts naming names. What is he doing? He's saying, oh, by the way, fact check me. If you don't believe me, go talk to any one of those hundreds of people. And Paul isn't the only one who does that. John, Luke, the other authors, they name drop people all the time on numerous occasions because they know that the people they're writing to will probably know those people. And they're saying, oh, by the way, if you're wondering about what I say, go talk to these people. So it's really hard to account for that, especially with the Apostle Paul, who was a scholar, extremely well-educated. Would he put all of that credibility on the line by saying something as extreme as that, if any of, as that, if any of those eyewitnesses would have stood up and said, actually, that guy's a lunatic and he's not telling the truth. Then you have the conversion of Paul himself, a man who had everything to lose, was the top of his game, had everything he needed, no reason to leave it, was enjoying status, fiercely protective of his religion, persecuting Christians, and one day everything flips on its head and he becomes Christianity's greatest proponent, preaching the resurrection of Jesus because he's seen him, he says. And then you have James, the brother of Jesus. James did not believe his own brother while Jesus was going about his earthly ministry. He was not a follower of Jesus. Something happened. Paul says here that Jesus appeared to James. Now James is a leader of the church. He writes one of the books in the Bible. What happened to James? Historical critical scholars are almost all in agreement on this. That if you're going to say that the resurrection didn't happen, what you have to say is that something so powerful did happen that it convinced hundreds of people that they had seen, touched, heard, and ate with Jesus of Nazareth after he had died. And they gave their lives for that belief. What happened? If it's even remotely possible that there is a creator, then resurrection is possible. Can't he do it again? Can't he recreate? But the truth is you can take all of these details and you can see, you can see how knowing what we know, there is no plausible alternative explanation for what happened that doesn't butt heads with the evidence that we do have in some way. But 
That's not proof. You can look at this evidence and you can say, I see this and this and this and this and this, and they all point to that one conclusion, but I simply cannot accept it. Okay, fine. There must be another explanation. Or I've heard some say, as long as there's that possibility for doubt, I won't believe. Okay, well, fine, but play fair. That means by your own logic, you really can't believe in almost anything. They didn't have videotapes for the Protestant Reformation or the wars in England or, you know, why would you believe anything? The remarkable thing is you can see and still not believe. The reason we can't say seeing is believing is because when we see, we interpret what we see through the lens of our predetermined categories and biases. So if you are or have been predetermined that there can't be a God or a resurrection, then whatever you see is going to be interpreted through that filter. Mary sees the empty tomb but draws an early conclusion. She sees two angelic beings, and then she sees Jesus there, but she doesn't even recognize him. Why? There's a number of possible reasons. In that culture, men weren't supposed to talk to women and vice versa alone. So, you know, she's weeping. She probably feels funny in the early morning. There's this guy, and oh, you know, maybe put her head down and not actually look at him. That's, that's a possibility. Some say that maybe it's because Jesus' resurrection body was a little different, harder to recognize at first. Certainly the last time she saw Jesus, he was beaten to a pulp and looked a lot different than this perfected, strong person standing in front of her. But certainly what she saw didn't fit her preconceived categories. She was looking for a dead Jesus it's kind of like this. I heard a, an illustration from Tim Keller that he gave years ago. It's called Dead Man Walking. Maybe you've heard a song. I don't know. Uh, suppose you have a friend, and this friend suffers from the mental delusion that he is dead. Okay? Even though he's walking around, he, he's acting and breathing, everything, he, but he thinks he's dead. And you're trying to help your friend see, hey, you're not dead. And he's forlorn and downcast because he's dead. You know, and, and so you're going, come on, you're not dead. And so you run across an article that mentions that science has proven that after so long, a dead body cannot bleed. And so you go, oh, this is it. And you go to your friend and you say, hey, I want you to read something. So your friend reads the article. And, hey, that's pretty fascinating, isn't it? Oh, yeah, yeah, that's, that's really interesting. And so what, what do you do? You grab your pocket knife and you take it out and you cut your friend's hand, and all of a sudden, blood starts coming out, and you step back, and you watch, and, you're, and your friend gasps, and goes, oh. and you say, ah, oh, there now, don't you see? And he says, yes, we've just disproven the science. <laughs> Dead men really do bleed. <laughs> you can see but you're only going to see and believe what passes through your preconceived filters. So Jesus asks Mary this question. And I've often overlooked the question. But I think it's the crux of the matter because he's drawing her out. 
Who are you looking for? That's the question. What are you looking for? Mary doesn't recognize the risen Jesus because she is looking for the wrong thing. She doesn't have categories to recognize what she's seeing, but this is what it comes down to. What am I looking for? What am I hoping for? What do I believe is possible? Why do we keep coming back to epic superhero movies and stories of mythic struggle? Why did you get so pumped up a couple weeks ago when the Star Wars Episode Nine trailer came out? Maybe you didn't. I did, okay? Could it be because deep down, we know we're looking for something? What if all those stories of struggle, evil, death, redemption, resurrection in some form or another, what if they're all pointing to something that we know in our gut is supposed to be true? What longings do you have that you're trying to satisfy? Where are we turning for that satisfaction, for new life, for new creation, for resurrection from sickness, from a broken relationship, from death? Who are you looking for? Mary does not believe until Jesus draws out. Who are you looking for? There's the objective reality, but sometimes we still don't see. Then there's what we call personal experience. Mary, he says. She hears his voice. He calls her by name. This is ultimately how the Holy Spirit draws us out. He calls us by name. Four years or so ago, one of these Easter services, we played a clip by Bono from U2, the band. He was being interviewed by some British newscaster on a, some special, and he was asking him about his beliefs, and he got to a point, he says, so you really believe that Jesus was raised from the dead? And Bono said, yes, I do. And one of the reasons he gave was he said, you know, over 2,000 years, millions and millions of people have claimed to have been personally touched in some way by this Jesus. In our post-enlightenment seeing is believing culture, that doesn't count. But millions and millions of people reporting these experiences, is this not data? Doesn't it count? All this time, Mary has been searching frantically for Jesus, for a dead Jesus. But she only finds him when she realizes that he has found her. That's her experience. He calls her. And he's doing that right now in this room. He's calling you, he's breaking your categories. And this is what he's done in my life on multiple occasions. When bad things happen, I'm going, where is God? I'm like looking around an empty tomb, you know? 
When there's, when there's a conflict with someone, surely God's on my side. Surely God's got my back. And if I pray hard enough, he'll prove me in the right. He'll justify me and the situation will be resolved. That's the God I'm looking for. That's the Jesus I'm trying to find. Where'd he go? You know, he, was he in the bathroom? What? You know, he's, he's not here. It didn't come through for me. And then all of a sudden, when I stop and listen, a revelation occurs And I realized God didn't abandon me. He wasn't distant. That the very circumstance that I assumed was to be interpreted as his absence was his megaphone speaking into my life. But I wasn't listening because I was looking for the wrong Jesus. Or a tragedy or a death of a loved one. I have a friend who's a pastor. Some of you know him. Lost his father this last week and is still preaching on Easter Sunday. And I talked to him this week. He said, you know, you have to go through this process of grief. You, ha- you, can't, you cannot rush the process. He says, you have to feel grief and pain. You have to wrestle with all the questions, the memories, the loss, all of it. And he says, we may not ever understand it, but he said, God was, he's present in the midst of it. He's present all the way through it. He's not off somewhere. He didn't forget about you when... He allowed this person to die. He's right there speaking through it. Oswald Chambers wrote a couple of devotionals on the same topic and his, uh, my utmost for his highest, and so I'll paraphrase and combine them both, but it says, a lily or a tree or a servant of God may convey God's message to me. What hinders me from hearing is that I am, taking up with other, I am taken up with other things. The child attitude is always... Speak, Lord, for thy servant heareth. If I have not cultivated this devotion of hearing, I can only hear God's voice at certain times, and other times when I am taken up, and at other times I am taken up with things, things which I say I must do, and I become deaf to him. And he says, without the sovereign hand of God himself, nothing touches our lives. Okay, so think about that for a moment. However you perceive God in the midst of tragedy, struggle, good times, bad times, nothing happens outside of God's awareness, which means he's somehow involved in everything. Nothing touches our lives without the sovereign hand of God. Do we discern his hand at work or do we see things as mere occurrences? He says this, get into the habit of saying, speak, Lord. And life will become a romance. Life will become a romance. Every time circumstances press in on you, say, speak, Lord, and make time to listen. Chastening is more than a means of discipline. It is meant to bring me to a point of saying, speak, Lord. He says, your life will become a romance. Your life will become a new intimacy. And that's what we see in Mary's life. What happens He says this funny thing that's been badly interpreted in some ways. Do not hold on to me, Mary, for I have not ascended to the Father. What's going on there? I used to think that it's because somehow Mary's physical self was tainted and Jesus couldn't touch her for some reason. But then he goes into this room. He's like, hey, touch me. See, you know, that couldn't be the case. And several commentaries repeatedly point out, and I'll just quote one. Mary must rethink the nature of intimacy with Jesus. 
It will be a new intimacy, a spiritual intimacy. She can't relate to him in the same way she once did, but now in a better way. Because Jesus had predicted that if he goes away, it'll be better because he'll send the Holy Spirit. A spiritual intimacy realized in the coming of the Holy Spirit, which is fulfilled in the next episode in the upper room. She cannot hold on to the relationship with Jesus that characterized his earlier life. She must be now the messenger of another message. Jesus has not abandoned his friends, but is coming to them. When he does, he will show them the sort of interior life he desires to take up with them. It's quoted by Gary Burge there. And he says, go to my brothers. This is the first time he calls them brothers. Tell them I'm ascending to my father and your father, my God and your God. There's a whole new relationship, a whole new way of relating because of the cross and because of the intimacy we have with the Holy Spirit. And because of that relationship, because we know that God was not absent at the empty tomb and he's not absent in the empty tombs of your life where you're kind of wondering, where in the heck are you? We now see every circumstance as his voice. Everything has purpose. Your life has meaning. Everything has meaning. Sometimes we don't get it and we kind of question, what could this mean? But we trust and we wrestle with it. We go through the hard things and the good things. But it means God is intentional. He's intentional about you. He's moving your life in a direction. He's moving this world in a course, in a purpose towards new creation and resurrection. It's a romance. It's an epic. It's a story. It's the true myth that all those other myths were just pointing towards. Seeing is believing, we say. And now Mary's life has purpose. You know, women were not considered credible witnesses to an event. And so one critic of Christianity said, we know that these accounts can't be true because no one would believe a testimony that was first given by hysterical females. That was a first century critic of Christianity. And so later down the road, we look at that and we say, well, hold on a minute. Doesn't that mean that if you were going to make something like this up, that you would not include women as the key witnesses? Women were looked down upon. And the amazing thing about Mary, who can't see, even with all the evidence in front of her, who is called out by Jesus and claimed and loved by her, Mary becomes the first messenger of the gospel. She's the apostle to the apostles. She's given a, a mission and a purpose, and she goes and proclaims. I want to invite you this morning to come and see. To see the empty tomb this morning. Examine it. What do you see? The resurrection stories, the evidence. Investigate it. And more than that, I want you to examine the empty tombs in your life. The places where it seems God has been absent I ask you, what are you looking for? What kind of God, what kind of Jesus are you thinking you're supposed to find who's not there? Could it be that he's right here blasting a megaphone at you, but he's not using the language you're looking for because you don't have the right filters, you don't have the right categories? Hear him call your name today. 
hear him break those categories and those filters down. Is it possible he's been there all along? What if instead of an absent God, the very circumstances you see as his absence are in fact his voice trying to get your attention? He's calling you by name. In John chapter three, Nicodemus came to Jesus by night and Jesus says to him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Doesn't matter what anyone up here says, unless you believe, unless you are reborn, unless your whole category is smashed apart and remade, you will not see. So if that voice is calling you today, step out and listen. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born, not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. That's why millions of people are either total lunatics or they've heard his voice and they see. And there's plenty of people in this room who would bear that testimony. On the cross, Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He was raised on the third day He eliminated all barriers between you and God through his death. And he invites you to die with him and be born into his life. In Acts chapter two, the people heard this word and they were cut to the heart and they said, what do we do? And Peter replied, repent, turn to God, be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the Holy Spirit. You'll have a new birth. You'll have a new heart. You'll have a relationship with Jesus. So if you're seeing something different today, then I invite you to make that decision and to respond to that invitation. I'm gonna ask that some of our elders come forward during this next song. And if that happens to be a decision you want to make, please take this opportunity to respond to his voice. Teacher, I hear you. He's not an absent God from an empty tomb. He's right here and he's calling you. So answer, listen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for speaking to so many of us, brothers and sisters in Christ, throughout the generations. We don't have proof. We don't have a videotape. But I trust that your Holy Spirit is working in some of us now, even those of us who call you our Lord and Savior, but maybe have doubted, maybe have forgotten the kind of God that you are and are looking for someone else.
So our faith is in question. Lord, remind us of the empty tomb and that you were there all along and call our name again. I pray that those who need to hear that, Lord, who need that new life today would respond to you and be courageous and bold and not let it fall by the wayside. I ask you again, what do you see? How do you see? What are you looking for? Listen. Jesus, fill us with resurrection hope this Sunday as we celebrate a new day, a new life, a new world. Thank you for what you've done. We praise you now in Jesus' name.